Praise the Lord. I think the Lord is speaking to us today. One of the greatest struggles that humanity deals with is the struggle with pride. One of the most uh, famous lines that I'll ever remember on pride is, you know, you grow up in a church and there's scriptures that you already have memorized in your mind because of how many times you've heard them quoted. So I, I consider myself privileged that before I even ever tried to memorize or study this word, I had some of it implanted already. And then there's things that's preached, that's dropped in your spirit that you'll always have with you forever from childhood. There's a, a quote on pride that I've heard my dad say many, many times. And it goes something like this. The same pride that will cause you to park your Corvette in the front will cause you to park your jalopy in the back. There's a lot of truth to that. That's, that illustrates a couple different kinds of pride, right? The, the, the haughtiness, wanting to be seen, wanting to be admired. And then there's the pride that's, I don't want them to see what, what I got going on. And, you know, and uh, you probably experienced that, that thing. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with wanting to have your house clean and everything, but Somebody knocks on the door and you know that they want to come in, but you're trying to do everything you can to drive them out because you don't want them to see, you know. <laughs> we all deal with some sort of pride. And you're not going to escape that in life. It's one of the most common sins. Ego is found within each and every single person. And it's always lurking beneath the surface eager to be recognized, flattered, and lifted up. Pride drives us to succeed at any cost. That's uh, an American characteristic. We, boy, we push, you know, work until success comes. And pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and just get in there and you can accomplish it without the help of anybody else. We want to be self-made people and we want everybody to recognize just how self-made we are. It's just natural within us. But deep inside the heart of a Holy Ghost-filled human being, there is this quest to live a life of humility. That's what God desires out of us. And it cannot be achieved until the struggle with pride is won. It's astonishing how much effort it takes for humility to overcome pride to the point that it can flow out in our conversations naturally. Have you ever been around somebody who just from hearing them talk, you know that their pride is on the high. You know what I'm talking about? They don't even realize it. But their pride, it just reeks, you know, and, and they can be talking to everybody and you can look at someone else and everybody's thinking the same thing. This dude right here is full of his self. Or this chick right here is all about me, myself, and I. You know, and you can feel it. It comes out in our conversation naturally. 
when we're prideful and you don't even realize it. And that's part of being born into sin, shaping in iniquity. It, it's, it's, it's there. It's natural. It's the thing we drift to. It's what we would naturally be if God is not introduced into our life. And it gives real meaning to that phrase that says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Our flesh is weak. And the Bible says that we have to crucify the flesh. And that's something that's not a one-time event. There's, there's times you have to, there's, folks, there's been times that I have had to drag my flesh down to an altar and nail it down on that altar. And every, every once in a while, it does us a lot of good to do that. Get that pride out. Get it gone. Sometimes it, it takes a breakthrough in worship to get that pride out and behind you. Many times throughout the Old Testament, God's people found themselves at war with heathen nations. And they, you know, most of the time they thought that there was, they were just being persecuted or there was no reason for it. But most often, each conflict that there was was rooted in the pride that had worked its way into God's people, into their hearts, into their lives. They had become prideful because of the blessings that God had been pouring out on them. And they thought they didn't need anybody or anything. And they began to forget about God and the fact that he had brought them there and pride seeped into their heart. This cycle repeated itself over and over and over again. God would bless. The people would become proud of the blessing. The pride would lead to worldliness. God would bring an enemy army to do battle with them. And finally, his people would humble themselves and pray and return to a right relationship with God. There is a significant portion of the Old Testament that is that cycle. And that's all it is, is a cycle, yeah. continual. If you open up the book of Judges and begin to read the book of Judges, you'll find out real quick because it's rapid in the book of Judges. It doesn't take very long. It, it tells the story quickly of a judge would come along and God would use that judge to bring them out of the trouble that they were in. And, and, and you know, they thank the Lord for this judge that God had sent to lead them out. Then all of a sudden, within just a few scriptures, they're back into the same mess. Judge after judge, they pass away. And, and they, you know, this cycle continues with pride, it illustrates the fact that we've got to keep pride in check. Amen. We have to. Yeah. It's, it's Christ-like to keep pride in check. And this is where we find Israel in our text. In Second Chronicles, after Rehoboam had become king of Judah, he forsook the law of the Lord and he led people into sin. Himself, he led them into sin. In the fifth year of his leadership, Shishak, king of Egypt, attacked Israel. And the Bible tells us in 2 Chronicles 12 and 2 that Israel was attacked because they had transgressed against the Lord. Rehoboam had strengthened himself as king and was convinced that he no longer needed to follow after the Lord to be powerful, to be successful, to do everything it was to manage this nation he had gotten past God. I want you to hear this this morning. We can't get past God right. because of how blessed we are. There, there's, I, I've known people that 
they, you know, they repented, received the Holy Ghost, they baptized, and all of a sudden things start working in the right direction. God begins to bless them. And over time, they forget about God and they've backed away from Him because they think they've got all that they need. But they don't understand that everything we have is propped up by a God that has blessed us. Yes. And the quicker we decide that I'm not here on my own, but God brought me here. The better off we're going to be. Yes. Amen. And, and we're just going to see right here in this story how quickly that ruined a nation. So he's, he's brought them to this point to where people aren't considering God anymore. The entire nation's gotten to this point. And then God sent a prophet. Now, this is important. God is a God of mercy. He's always been a God of mercy. He's a God of judgment, too. We had a whole lesson about that just recently. He's got a judgment, but he's also a God of mercy. And so he doesn't simply wait for people to rebel against him so he can judge them. Instead, he's going to send a warning before he ever sends judgment. And he did that by the prophet. He does it by preachers today and, and disciples. We are trying to send a warning to this world that there's going to come a day when you're not going to have another opportunity. Chances are going to run out. It's going to be the end. There's got to be somebody to send a warning. God's doing it today. He did it then. And so he sent Shemaiah the prophet. It was not God's intent for his people to be destroyed by an Egyptian king. That's not what he wanted. He wanted to first give them an opportunity to humble themselves. So before God turned them over to Shishak, he sent the prophet Shemaiah to speak to King Rehoboam. And the best way to deal with actions and attitudes resulting from pride in this way is to address the problem head on. And that's exactly what the prophet did. He told the king, thus saith the Lord, you have forsaken me and therefore have I also left you in the hand of Shishak. And so God makes it very clear through the mouthpiece, the prophet, you have decided you no longer need me. And so I'm going to hand you over to Shishak to do whatever he wills with you. Egyptian king. Now, years ago, Egyptian king, or I should say Pharaoh, went after, chased after the people of God and was destroyed. But he was powerful. He was strong. He had massive armies and they were willing to kill the people of God to keep them in slavery, whatever necessary. And here again, we find an Egyptian king coming after the people of God and they are left in his hands to do whatever he would. Now, this warning that the prophet gave struck terror in the heart of these people and the princes of Israel, every single person was scared at this point that, you know, Egypt could easily take over the entire world. They could start with us and take over the rest of the world. We could be the starting point of it all. And so they had a swift response to what had just been said. And when our pride is confronted, a swift response is needed. That's exactly what happened. We can humble ourselves before God 
and fall on his mercy or we can continue in that stubborn pride that's so natural and ultimately be destroyed. This was the decision that they had to make. Like Rehoboam, we got to make a quick response when God begins to warn us. And he begins to tell us you need to turn around. And they declared, they've just been told that they're going to be put in the hands of an Egyptian king to do whatever he wants. Their response, real simple. They declared, the Lord is righteous. It doesn't really make sense. The average person would say, Lord, save us, we're sorry. But they said, the Lord is righteous. What did they mean? What were they trying to say? What was the point of that? There's more depth to that statement than what is realized at first reading. It was both an admission of their proud actions and it was also an acknowledgement that God was righteous in punishing them. They were telling God, Lord, you're right. You're right in what you're doing. We deserve what you're sending toward us. And how many times do we act, are we willing to actually tell God, Lord, you are right. We don't even like telling somebody else that they're right. You know, it's hard to, well, I'm wrong and you're right. That's a hard thing to do for everybody. But then to turn and tell the Lord, I would venture to say that most Christians have done it less than five times in their whole life. Lord, you are right and I'm wrong. You're right for sending this on me. You're right for judging me in the way that you have. They declared that and they found the right response, a brutal honesty in the presence of God. And it drove them back to a place of humility where God wanted them to be. The Lord wants us to live in humility. And that's where they were brought back to. The Lord told Shemaiah that because the people had humbled themselves, he would show mercy to them. He would not allow Shishak to completely destroy them. Instead, the Egyptian king would only be allowed to take the treasures of the house of the Lord and of the king's house. They would only be able to steal from them. Now, this is really amazing. I wouldn't plan on stumbling across this when I was studying it. But I came across it anyway. I looked up this King Shishak. I don't know a whole lot about him, except that he rhymes with Meshach. Um, but I got to studying about him, and there's a whole list of the places that this king and his armies raided. And it's printed on buildings in the Middle East. You can go and look at it. And there's murals of him, which aren't very detailed, obviously, but... It's, you know, you can tell by the writing, they'll say, well, that's, that's obviously Shishak and all the places his armies went and everything. And not once, it, it lists everything else that we read in the Bible that he did. So it's clear that our Bible's accurate, but not once does it mention that he raided the temple at all. And we know he did, scripture says it. But I just wonder today, if the Lord did not allow Shishak to even boast about it. He allowed him to raid the temple, 
but you're not going to get recognition for it because my people humble themselves. I don't know if that's the absolute truth today. I can't tell you that for sure, but I know one thing. He doesn't report that he did it. He doesn't report that he did it. The Lord honors the people that will return back to him. Amen. 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 If somebody, I, I don't care how far gone they are, Brother March, if somebody will repent, if they will turn around, amen. I know people, I've met people uh, in, in ministry that have done things that you can't even imagine. You know, you think of the worst thing you've ever heard of somebody doing. I've heard some, I've heard some terrible things that people are doing in this world. But I'm going to tell you what, I've heard some terrible things that people have done and God has still offered redemption That's to them. Right. Because He loves the people that will turn back to Him. Amen. 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 Even so much that He might not even let a king of Egypt boast about getting anything off of them. Praise God. Shishak could have easily taken the life of Rehoboam and he could have held all of Israel captive like Pharaoh did, book of Exodus. But because of their act of humility before the Lord, and they made the right decision, the king's hand was stayed from doing that. God prevented him from doing it. And he proved to his people that he will deliver those who humble themselves. They not only found that pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall, but if people will humble themselves... God will deliver them from pending destruction. Amen. Yes, there's the judgment of God and he's good at it. Yeah. But there's also the mercy and the grace of God. Yes. And he's just as good at, at that as he is judgment. And that's why at the end of days, yeah, there's going to be some people that are going to end up in the pit. And that judgment of God is righteous. And we're going to have to say, Lord, you're right for doing that. But we're also going to be able to turn around on the street of gold and say, Lord, you're right for bringing me here. You're just as good at your grace and your mercy. My, how pride has taken people over the ages. It took Adam and Eve at the beginning. Well, you can be like him. He just doesn't want you to be. He's trying to prevent you from that. And so they lift themselves up. The Tower of Babel was all about pride. We want to get ourselves up to that place that God is at. What happened? They got dispersed. King Saul had a pride issue. He watched young David do the exploits that God did through him. And he was prideful about it. The Titanic was kind of a prideful thing. Brother Blake got into the Titanic really big when he was a lot younger and he had like old replica newspapers and things about it. And there's, there's newspapers that were floating around that said the ship that not even God could sink. You know the rest of the story. They messed up. And I'm not saying that God did it. I don't know if he did or not. But I am telling you there was some pride there. Yeah. For sure. 
There definitely was. Pride involves exalting oneself. And I have an interesting scripture for that today. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. We've got weapons of our warfare that we spiritually fight against things that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. There are spirits that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. There are people that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. It's anything or anybody that will exalt themselves. That is pride. Overlooking ancient Corinth, when that scripture was written, when Paul wrote that, the place that this was in, in Corinth, there was a hill that was 1,857 feet high. And on top of it was a fortress. And Paul used that imagery. It's almost certain that that's why he said that to them. Because he knew that they would recognize this hill that was so high, exalted above everything with this fortress that was on it. And he looked at that and he used that imagery as an illustration for spiritual warfare. There is a kingdom that has exalted itself against God. And we make the decision every day whether we're going to be a part of a kingdom that everybody's exalting ourselves or whether we're going to exalt God and His kingdom. And the whole chapter was written about spiritual warfare, the things that Paul was opposing. Paul had an understanding of a few things. First, who the enemy was. He understood the enemy was not a political party. You hear me this morning? The enemy today is not a political party. And I don't, I don't much care who you're voting for or who you're rooting for today. Uh, if they win, it's not going to solve the problems of this nation. That's right. It's not going to do it. No. I don't care how righteous they seem. It may help a situation here or there, but it's not going to solve the problems in this nation. That's why God's put a church here. Yeah. That's why he's established his church Understand who the enemy is today. It's not an opposing political party or a government. It is in the spiritual realm yes, that we have a battle today. And he understood that. He also understood what his weapons were. Our weapons are not hands. Our weapons are not firearms. Our weapons are not words. Our weapons are prayer. Our weapons are the Holy Ghost. Our weapons are the gifts of the Spirit. That's how we fight our battles. Yeah. Amen. And so there's a lot of people today who are caught up in the physical realm. And thinking that the answer to all of these problems that they're seeing throughout the world is if I will just make this thing in the physical realm happen. It's not going to work. They're going to be disappointed. Because they don't have a spiritual vision that they're looking for. When the Holy Ghost comes on you and God begins to give you discernment of spirits and God begins to show you that prayer does things. Right. That is what moves evil in the world. That is what casts out 
anything that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. Weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Amen. And so after all this, Abijah, the son of Rehoboam, the grandson of Solomon, ascended to the throne of Judah. And at the same time, Jeroboam, who was an evil king, was ruling over the northern kingdom of Israel. Second Chronicles 13 and 2 lets us know that there was a war between God's nation and Jeroboam's nation. Abijah had assembled an army of 400,000 proven men, but Jeroboam had amassed an elite fighting force of 800,000 men. And so the people of God were outnumbered two to one. You would think in military that they would not stand a chance for every man that the kingdom of God had on the ground, the enemy had two. And so it was, I mean, physically, it's understood it's a battle that's over. That's if you're looking at the physical. Right. And this is the problem a lot of people have today. They are too busy looking at their physical surroundings to take a focus on the spiritual surroundings. Amen. And so before a sword was ever drawn or an arrow ever flew, Abijah stood on the edge of the battlefield and he called out to that evil kingdom that Jeroboam was running. And he reminded him that God had made a covenant giving the entire kingdom to David forever. He reminded him of prophecy that, God, that was given years ago. Abijah then told Jeroboam that he had rebelled against the Lord. Jeroboam had gathered children of Belial unto himself to give him ungodly counsel. He and his people were worshiping false idols of golden calves and the priests had been dismissed and replaced by worldly priests. He had absolutely gone against God in every way. And after letting Jeroboam know just how far his pride had taken him away from God, Abijah declared this. 2 Chronicles 13 and 10. But as for us, the Lord is our God and we have not forsaken him. He went on to say the priesthood was still doing service in the house of the Lord and that God himself was with them as their captain. And how they approached this battle is so very important. They did not allow pride to make them think they could win. They did not think, well, you know, because... Because we've been blessed up to this point, we're going to be able to fight this battle on our own. Didn't think that way. Neither did they allow arrogance to drive them into a war that they could not win. Come on. The words of Abijah were not offered from the vantage point of pride, but rather from a confidence that God was with them and he would fight for them. And so he boldly warned Jeroboam not to fight against the Lord God of his fathers because he'd surely be defeated. He didn't reference the fact that we've got half of your army fighting for us, but he did tell him we've got a God that's fighting for us. Amen. So he never once acknowledged his self in pride, but he acknowledged the God that would fight for them. Now, when Jeroboam heard all this, he disregarded Everything that was said and the battle began. He sent troops along the flanks of Judah in an attempt to surround them in any way that they could and attack from all sides. And Jeroboam was confident this was the strategy that would work. Surround them, infiltrate them, 
be done with it. It wouldn't take very long. But when Judah discovered they were surrounded, they responded quickly. And what's interesting is they didn't reposition their troops. They didn't fight back to back. They did not attempt to breach the battle lines. Instead, the Bible says that they cried out to the Lord and the priests blew the trumpets. And then as one voice, the men of Judah shouted a blood-curdling battle cry. And what happened next is just showing the power of a merciful God who reacts to a people who are living in humility. God violently destroyed Jeroboam and all of his army. Not because of some strategy that they thought their army had, but because they shouted unto their God. Zero pride, all humility. We're going to let God do the work. Amen. Can I tell you something today? There is nothing that Brother Ryan can do like out of my own power that's going to bring the revival to this world. But if I will allow myself to be a tool in the hands of God yes. and I will walk in such a way, oh, there's nothing that's impossible by His hand. That's right. Amen. And sometimes we've got to get to a point where we're just saying... It's not about us. It's not our will, but your will be done yes, in this earth. They cried out to the Lord and God gave them victory. And this, this powerful story that I've just read to you is showing us today that being humble before the Lord will pave the way to victory every single time. And thus, that scripture, if we'll humble ourselves and pray, the Bible says, thus the children of Israel were subdued at that time and the children of Judah prevailed because they relied on the Lord God of their fathers. Relying on God tells him, you don't trust yourself to fight the battle. It's letting him know you're humbling yourself in his presence and you're willing to let him do whatever he wants. You're leaning on him and not yourself. This, this weekend, we went to uh, Hardy to Spring River and, and me and dad kayaked down Spring River. We went up to Dam 3 and they, we got dropped off and we went down for the day yesterday. And uh, it was, we had a great time. We, we love stuff like that. And we realized the summer was getting away from us. And so we just planned it kind of quick and did it. But we were going through all of it, and it was pretty humid, hot. It was a good time to be on the river, you know, but sweating, you know, pretty bad. And I guess we had kind of slowed, and we looked at the time, and, and Dad said, you know, we probably better get some pep in our step here because we've got kind of a, a time of arrival that we're going to get to. And, and the ladies were in Hardy spending all of our money, and at some point we got to stop that, you know, so we can buy bread and milk. And live. Amen. And so he said, what we probably need to do is paddle a little faster. He said, I'm not going to wear myself out, but let's just paddle a little faster. I said, okay. And so here we are paddling. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I know that uh, Hurricane Laura already come through, but uh, 
her cousin, Hurricane Belinda, showed up on Spring River. I'm telling you, it went from one climate to the other in about two minutes. It was hot and sunny. And all of a sudden, this gust of wind started coming through and lightning and thunder. I'm talking trees were bowed over. And I'm looking at all these people, these sorry saps that are out here on their tube with their liquor, you know, and they don't know which, where, where they're at or which way they're going, you know, and the winds are blowing and they're getting hit by leaves and junk. And I said, oh no, we are in trouble because you go through these falls, you know, and you depend on being able to control your vessel. But you know what was amazing? Was the fact that we were actually being pushed. The wind was pushing us. And I looked over at Dad, and, and we've got these hats, you know, that are about to get blown away and things. And he had that paddle up, and he was holding it like this. He was going this way, and he held it like this where it was flat, and he was just pushing it. That's how hard that wind was blowing come a raining and everything. But I just thought it was something that after he had just said, we need to paddle. If we'd have had a sail, we'd have been speedboating. That's how strong this wind was. It was actually pushing us down river. And we were relying on the wind and not our own strength. There comes a time when you got to make the decision. I'm going to rely on the wind of God yes. and stop relying on my own strength to make it. Amen. Amen. You know, there's a stream. There, there's a current of the spirit in your life that at some point you got to find. You got to get out of the weeds and all the other junk that would hold you back and find that stream. That God is designed to push you along. In every service, there's a stream of the Holy Ghost that we need to find. I hope we find it this morning. Amen. But if you'll get in that stream, it will take you to the destination God wants you to go. But you know what you got to do? You got to quit paddling in a different direction. You got to quit taking direction from people that are up on the bank. And you got to find the stream of the Holy Ghost. Yes. Amen. And decide you're not going to stray from that no matter what happens. Several years before this massive battle that we just read of, God spoke to Solomon. And he actually said to Solomon what we read in our text. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. That was spoken to the people of God. And here we find them following it. I'm going to dig into the scripture in closing right now. And, and hopefully we relearn how awesome this scripture is. It's a scripture for our time. I'm looking at a time in which we need a land to be healed. You hear me this morning? If we've ever need our land to be healed, our nation to be healed, people to be healed, the ship to be righted. It's today. Yes, it is. Amen. And that's what this scripture is telling us will happen if we'll follow it. What's the first thing this scripture says? If 
my people. We need to realize that identity matters to God. If we'd ever get a revelation of who we are as the people of God, I think it'd do wonders. I know you're a person. I'm not doubting that today. But we get a revelation of whose person we are. The people of God. It changes everything. Because he specifically says in this scripture, if my people, not just any people, but the blood-bought, Holy Ghost-filled people, that's what I would say for our time. Back then, it was people who were serving Him. People who are living for God. Today, it would be the people who are living it, who have it in their life, who are spirit-filled. If my people, when a person of God calls out to Him, for lack of a better illustration, God's ears perk up. His imagination is caught by our prayers. His attention is captured the moment we begin to talk to Him. And that's not a selfish thing. That's not something that's, that's prideful today. It's just the fact that God loves to talk to His people. He loves it. That was His whole plan from the beginning of time. If my people, in a world where the term Christian has become so broadly defined, well, I'm a Christian, you know. And I, I tweet or Instagram or Facebook post a scripture every now and then. I'm a Christian. It's such a broad definition today. But there's some people that are living it. I want to be found living it. And not just saying it. Words carry some weight, but I'm going to tell you what. Somebody sees a person living for God. They see a difference. If my people, we need to be sure that we are truly His today by being born again and having His name applied to our lives so that it's no longer just Emma Passmore, but it's Emma Passmore Jesus. Your royalty. It's no longer... Margie Wilson, but it's Margie Wilson, Jesus. And like, you know, in our world, sometimes having a certain last name written on a check, that check will carry more weight. When you got that name Jesus attached, <laughs> it carries some weight. It carries some weight in the physical and the spiritual realm. If my people, if my people what? Humble themselves and pray. We can't expect just our identity to be the magical formula that does everything. Just because I'm a child of God, everything's going to fall into place. It does take some action on our part. That's important. But you know, when you were saved, you could have just said, you know, it was being preached. The Lord loves you. And you were sitting in the pew and he's preaching, the Lord loves you. 
and he's fighting for you and he wants you to turn to him, you could have sat there and thought, man, I guess that just does it. The Lord loves me. But at some point, you had to get out of your comfort zone and either stand up or come to an altar or lift your hands or shout or do something to get the attention of God. It did take action on your part. But I'm thankful that, you know, in a loving relationship, it takes two people. God didn't just say, well, I'm just going to do all the work. He wanted a loving relationship where I do have to do something. I do have to respond to Him. And so if my people humble themselves and pray. This is the prescription for a world that's in pain. It's what God is speaking to His church today. A people that are in this world, but we're not of it. We have to be exposed to a lot of things that we don't want to be exposed to in this world. It's the nature of living in a sinful world. And you look around, you read the newspaper, you look at the news, and you see turmoil in your world. Can I say this morning, it's not time to get down and strung out and in depression and down and out about our world. What it is time for is for His people to humble themselves and pray. I'm not sure that I could preach anything else to you today that's going to help as much as if the people of God, His people, who know who they are and how powerful they are in His hands, will humble themselves and pray. What will happen? Then will I hear from heaven. All the way down here in Clay County, your little prayer that you pray up to God as one of His people will be heard in heaven. And He will forgive their sin and heal their land. What does it look like for God to heal a land? I'm going to tell you what it looks like. It looks like people getting the Holy Ghost. It looks like witnessing to somebody who don't have a thing to do with God and never has, that you work with, that you live next to. It looks like somebody going down in the water in Jesus' name. Coming back, washed of any type of sin that they've ever lived. That's the healing of our land. And that's what God wishes today. Would you stand with me? If my people will humble themselves. We've always got to pray. Always got to pray. Sometimes we need to humble ourselves. If my people. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. God's asking us to be clothed with humility. Not pride. Clothed with humility. You know, every morning you get up 
and you walk to your closet and you open up the door and you decide what you're going to wear. Sometimes it depends on your mood, what you decide to wear. Sometimes it's the event, the occasion. You make a decision what you're going to wear and how you're going to present yourself to the people you see. You know what we also do? We walk up to a spiritual closet and we open up the door and decide what we're going to spiritually clothe ourselves with. In the scripture here, he says, clothe yourselves with humility. But I wonder if somebody would be interested in getting up in the morning first thing and saying, I'm going to clothe myself with the Spirit. I'm going to clothe myself with confidence in my God, not self, not prideful, but I'm going to be prideful about my God. Somebody clothe yourself with apostolic authority. What's wrong with that? Somebody clothe yourself with boldness for the God that you serve. And what we decide to put on today, what we decide to operate in, not the physical, but the spiritual, that's how the world is going to be healed. A world that needs healing. I wonder if we could pray right now and ask God, Lord... Remove any pridefulness out of myself.